Welcome to the Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production, assisted by my brother and resident Beatles expert Paul Abbott. Each episode we explore and score five songs pulled at random from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out the Beatles. Welcome to episode 32, and welcome to Paul My Little Plans and Schemes, Abbott. Ah, yes. Hello. I am Hello. a scheming type character. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, um, well, that's what you think. <laughs> Don't forget, you can keep in touch with us at big underscore sort on Twitter and Instagram, or by email to bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com, and please do drop us a review on whatever platform you're listening on, if you can, and like and share our posts. That would be lovely. Um, as always, we have links to other things in the podcast description. Um, I have a new song with my band project Bag Ratty Bro called Right On, which is available for streaming now on Spotify and other platforms. Um, Paul, is there anything you'd like to mention especially? Uh, just a head ballet podcast again, because mm-hmm. by the time this episode comes out, there should be another new episode, hopefully. Yep. And uh, yes, it's nice if people listen to that and enjoy some Tales of unusual music with guests. Good stuff. At Head Ballet Pod on all the things. Yes, and linked in the description. Okay, let's do this Beatles Day, Paul. So that would be the 10th of May. 10th of May. Now, just for so everyone knows, this is probably going to be a fairly meaty episode in some ways. Mm. And I was trying to find something that I could get through quite quickly for on yeah. this Beatles Day. And then of all the options I found for 10th of May... It's like, oh, I can't not mention this one, and I could do a whole show on this. Okay. It's 10th of May, 1960. It's which when the Silver Beatles auditioned for Larry Palms. So it's, it's right. a sort of legendary day in early Beatles history. It's, it's another one of these fork-in-the-road moments, mm. you know, where things could have gone one way or another. Okay. So the idea was Larry Palms is this important uh, London-based entrepreneur, promoter, you know, manager... Yeah. Svengali type character who, who had lots and lots of, uh, you know, a stable of stars, people like Billy Fury, people all with, you know, insane, powerful surnames. And right. so he comes up to Liverpool to try and find a backing group to for Billy Fury to go on tour with. Um, Billy Fury was from Liverpool originally, so that makes sense. He comes up and he goes to the, to the Blue Angel, a nightclub mm-hmm. still there in, in town, uh, and does this open audition for groups. And the Silver Beatles are one of the groups that turn up and play. I mean, you've, and the lineup on that day is it's Paul and John and George, Stu Sutcliffe, who's only had a bass guitar for you know a month or something, right? Um, and although he could eventually play it a bit, you know, enough to go and, and do his stuff in Hamburg and that, this at this point you really can't. Yeah. Uh, they should have had their drummer Tommy Moore, but he just didn't turn up. So they have okay. a standing drummer from one of the other groups, a guy called Johnny Hutchinson. And there's some famous pictures from that day with like Stu with his back turned so they can't see that he's not playing or not yeah. playing properly and everything. And of course, they don't get picked. No. Um, but they do get a call a little while later, I think about a week later or something like that, to say, well, do you want to go up to Scotland with this guy, Johnny Gentle? He needs a band. Right. You know, they just throw these package tours together. You know, these bands yeah. don't get time to rehearse together because everyone's more or less playing the same sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, do you know this one? Yeah. yeah. So they end up going on tour with a guy called Johnny Gentle around Scotland on a few dates in Scotland. This totally unspectacular tour. 
Mm. But it's a very early point. But, you know, if they'd have played well or if they'd have been able to convince Larry Parnes, they might have ended up backing Billy Fury on tour or something like that. And their, mm. their pathway may have been totally different. They might have ended up just as, as someone's backing group. I mean, I don't think oh, that yeah. would have happened. But, you know, Larry Parnes is a big, significant character in, in the story of 60s pop and rock and entertainment. Mm. So it's it's worth reading up about him. There's a book came out recently, which I was I shared something on the uh, Instagram feed. It's called The Velvet Mafia, which is all about the sort of the, the gay man, the gay man, not one big gay man who ran everything. <laughs> the gay men who ran sort of a lot of the entertainment industry in the '60s, right. and a lot of that's about Larry Parnes, and it's absolutely fascinating about how you know all the entertainment business is sort of interlinked between these people like Epstein and Parnes and, and a whole bunch of other people Robert Stigwood so that's the Velvet Mafia by uh, Daryl W Bullock it's a really really good book all about that and that talks about when obviously the Beatles and Parnes is paths cross but yeah it you could go into a lot more detail there's quite a lot of detail about this you know yeah. this audition and what happened on the day and there's photos of John getting Billy Fury's autograph and stuff which is quite sweet mm-hmm. um but yeah it's a uh, I'll leave it there, otherwise I'll just... I'll, it's, yeah, it's, it sounds you've given us a good amount of uh, reference material to go and read up about as well, and yeah. uh, it's an interesting one. But yeah, Young Beatles, off to Scotland for a crappy tour with Johnny Gentle after that. Just the way it had to be. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for that, Paul. Like you say, we have got a bit of a uh, an episode coming up, um, size-wise. You'll see why. First up, we have Free as a Bird. As a bird, Paul. What type of bird do you think, Gary? What type? Uh, I would say a black a pigeon. A black pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's very specific. Mm. No. Yes. Well, I think pigeons are the opening to this in the video, aren't they? Really. Yeah. That's what. That's it. Yeah. So it's happened. We finally got one of the 1990s songs. Yes. It was. We didn't know when they were going to come out, and it's t- it's turned up here at the opening of this episode. So the recording details for "Free as a Bird." The recording mm. release details. It's recorded in 1977 in the Dakota by John Lennon. Right. Voice and piano onto just a tape recorder, so they're all bound together as just a recording, you know, like a memo to himself, songwriting. Cut to, you know, 1994. Yoko's now given the tapes to Paul and all the other remaining Beatles. Mm -hmm. And we've got February and March 1994 in Mill Studios in Sussex, McCartney's place. They go and add their parts to it, make it into a new Beatles single. Mm-hmm. Comes out as a single on the 4th of December 1995, spends eight weeks on the charts, gets to number two. Mm. And it's, but you would have heard it before then as the opening track on Anthology One, which came out on the 20th of November 1995, yeah. the day that it premiered on radio. I remember listening to it on the radio, listening to the premiere of the new Beatles song. Um, I think it played earlier in the morning, like really early in the morning, but it was on the breakfast radio show on Radio 1 and I was listening to it on the way walking to school. Right. And just being like... Now, I mean, before we even get into what the song is and whether we think it's any good and all that stuff, to have a new Beatles song to listen to Mm. when I was 
I was just 17 mm. and be able to put my Walkman on a walk to school and hear a new Beatles song was insane. Uh, but we should also mention that years later, 2015, in fact, there's a new remix done of it to, to go with the OnePlus collection. Right. So it's there is another version out there other than the one on, on Anthology 1. that you can, It's mainly available on YouTube or it's on the OnePlus box set, the Blu-ray collection yeah. with the videos. Um, so that's just by the by. We'll probably mention that a little bit there. It's... Do you know what? I'm handing it over to you to start this off well, with. Well, I guess I should make some kind of a comment on it at some point. Um, yeah, it was the same for me at the age of 14. I don't remember the specifics, but I do remember the excitement of it coming out. Um, and for me as well, the relief that it wasn't rubbish um, as far as I'm concerned. You know, yeah, the lead Lennon vocal isn't as clear as you'd, you'd wish if you know if you had the choice, but... Um, the excitement of hearing the nearest we'd ever get to new Beatles music in in our lifetime was was a thrill, um, and the song itself is full of drama and excitement to kind of take that feeling and amplify it. You know, they they chose a song that had some uh, some drama about it. Um, yeah, musically though, as we are in the music bit, we have a a steady chord pattern, piano. You know, it, it is John's notepad kind of singing and it's 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 just to get that melody across which um is very lennon solo at its core but handily really does suit the splitting up of the middle sections you know the 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 b section as it were to paul and george respectively when they get their go at singing um yeah i think the verses are very reminiscent of john's solo stuff but when you add in ringo's heavy drums and his added percussion 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 uh paul's bass and george's brilliant lead over the top i think you, you get something that doesn't sound like the beatles when they were the beatles of old but you get the beatles from 1995 you know whatever that is i know it's a mixture of the late 70s and the 90s all smooshed together but what we don't get is a oh do you remember when the beatles sounded like this here's something that sounds like that it's like well they're, they're still alive they're still going the, the rest of them other than john and this is what they sound like now when they make music, and I, I thought that was that was great that they, they did that. Mm. Um, they didn't try and really try and recapture, I think, a certain sound from their past. I just thought they recorded what needed to happen with that song. A bit like if John had stayed alive and then they started backing him up on some stuff. I don't know. But I think this and Real Love really do sit in a place of their own. They sound like new Beatles. They're a tantalising taste of what a reformed Beatles could have sounded like had you know the worst not happened. Um, and to be fair, it did actually sound like as close as it could be, you know, this is the real thing. It isn't some fake addendum Beatles. It was the Beatles circa 1995. And we you're going to get you're going to get letters about this, Gary. Why is that? Because p- people do have, uh, you know, strong feelings about these. Oh, yeah. Songs. Well, this is my this is my feeling. About yeah, it. We, I know. We lived, yeah, yeah. Well, we lived through through this. This is our Beatles that we lived through. It's our bit of the story we actually did experience for the first time. I'm not saying it's the best bit of the story. But it is a bit of the story, whether you yes, like it or not. That's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like the Colin Baker of Beatles, you know, um, <laughs> Doctor Who. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm about, um, yeah. But I really do like the bridge section change to the uh, the ascending chord pattern with all the surging drama and intensity. I like how it breaks back into the verses of the great George solo the second time round. I like how it screams out of that this solo. I, I like the big cheesiness of it. Um, I think the backing vocals are great, and hearing those block harmonies again. And the guy's voices together is really nice. Um, I'm going to give it 80 for music. Bloody hell. 
I like it. Well, no, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, you, you like lots of things. You score less than that, though. And I'll say just yeah. before we move off music, because we're, yeah. uh, we've we not mentioned an important name um, involved in this. What? Jeff? Jeff Lynn? Oh, you've said it before production. Oh, right. Okay. It's, well, everyone knows. I've, uh, it's worth mentioning uh, something on this that's interesting in terms of Paul's playing. He's playing a five-string bass on this. Okay. So he got he got given by the company Wall W A L uh, a five string yes. bass which yeah. has a low B on it which means he could play in those sections where they drop to the second section in C because it modulates into C from A. Right. You could have a really low bass C on it which mm. you don't get on any other Beatles song because he never played a five string bass on anything. You know, no, no. They weren't a thing back then, really. I don't believe. Mm. Um, yeah. In terms of what's who's on here, it's it's obvious. Ringo drumming. Mm. George is playing acoustic guitars, electric guitars. He's doing the ukulele at the end. Paul's mm. obviously adding keys uh, to supplement John's yeah. piano. Yeah, He's doing some that. acoustic guitar, doing this bass. I think all three living Beatles do some vocals on it, mm. but as does Jeff Lynn, who adds some harmony vocals and acoustic guitar alongside mm. his other role. Now, before <laughs> before we move on, right? Mm. This is seventy beats per minute. This song. Yeah, yeah. That's very a, slow. It is a slow, yeah. Which makes it approximately the same as Let It Be and Fool on the mm. Hill and Oh Darling. Yeah. Now, you've got to try and picture those songs and this song in a bracket then, because mm. they're all ostensibly piano-led things yeah. at this speed. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a funny one, this one, because I don't really know what it is. What yeah? What genre it is or yeah? What? It's because yeah, it's, it's seventy beats per minute. It's not a ballad, but it's not fast enough to not be a ballad. But it's, it's got um, it's got a slow swing to it, sure. And I think it's for me, it's it is like John Lennon plus rather than the Beatles. It is something that would work. It's very much like what you'd expect to hear on his solo stuff. Um, but maybe he would have sped it up when he came to actually do it in the studio. Maybe someone would have said. Or you know, kick it up a gear. Um, but I don't know. I I like it. I like the. I think there's something really um, dynamic about the way it just. I know it's slow, and that's a strange word to put next to it. But the way it hits each beat really steadily with a big, and when it gets to that that modulation, I, I don't know. I don't really feel the slowness of it myself. Uh, yeah, I've doing the re-listening for this. I found it it dragging quite a lot um which is odd because it doesn't drag because you're entirely right because of the nature of how it's produced which we'll be coming mm. on to it can't drag okay okay but so let's let's get on to production yeah, to production <laughs> okay okay um yeah so before scoring this you sent me um, some copies of the 2000 well you didn't send me copies you sent me links to remind me to listen to the 2015 remix um which you described as less jeff lynn slightly less jeff lynn although slightly he was involved in in yeah. the remix i believe so I can't say it bothers me too much. Um, it's not a bit. It's not like listening to um, "All Things Must Pass" with Phil Spector and the, the way that that song was. That album is completely drowned in something. I, I don't find the hand of Lynn to be um, something that bothers me as much. But so why, why not give me a bit of a a run through of what you mean by? Okay. Well, I, I mean, without going into reasons why Jeff Lynn's producing this and George Martin isn't. Because obviously they asked George, and he yeah. apparently they asked him, and he said, "I don't want to. My ears, my ears aren't good enough." And yet he produced the entire anthology albums. Mm. He might have felt that the archive listening was a different affair. 
Um, I don't know. Uh, so they're getting Jeff Lynne, who's George's favourite. Yeah. So it sounds like something off a George album. Like, sounds like something off Cloud Nine. Yeah. It it just doesn't have the Beatles things. Now, Jeff Lynne, as you've got to give him credit for, he, he's and this is mentioned in this, um, Nothing Is Real podcast, I've been just a thing about the Travelling Wilburys, and mm. they're talking about how Jeff Lynne is the sort of producer who's willing to sit and do the hard work. Yeah. Whereas a lot of musicians are just not interested in that. So Jeff will do, will do the job of taking this tape, using the digital technology available to him in 1993 mm. to produce a version that the rest of the Beatles can play along to. Mm-hmm. Now, that must that's 17 years after it was recorded by John. Now, we are, are so much further on in digital technology now mm. that it would be a totally different affair if they did something like this now. Because demixing technology, uh, retiming, retuning technology is so yeah. much more, you know, you can hold it in your hand in some cases in terms of apps and things. Mm. Uh, it's it's a very different digital world. So he had a lot of things to to work against yeah. Yeah. as well, cleaning up and retiming the audio, which meant, meant making it to a stricter beat, which mm. is why I think it, it, it runs the problem of feeling like it plods. Mm. Um, but I hate the drum sound. I just hate it. I think it does... Such bad work for Ringo. It doesn't sound like Ringo, even though Ringo's played drums on tracks that sound like that because Jeff Lynne's produced them before. Yeah. I hate it. Sounds like Ringo's playing a massive bin instead of a snare drum. There's no, yeah. and so but so he could, all he can do is just the simplest stuff, and he's so much more capable a drummer. Yeah, he's not doing very much on this, but then it's such a slow song that you have to wonder what. Yeah, but done. we're in this episode. We're going to get onto a, a fairly slow song where he plays yeah. the greatest drums possibly yeah. on record. <laughs> so, um, and it's got that weird phasing noise on the drums. Yeah, it, I don't understand. It sounds the drum kit is a bit reminiscent of um, um, his song Ringo song, where well, what's it called, Paul Ringo song? Of, of which one? The, song of the Ringo thousands song, that he's the, done. No, the one he wrote for the Beatles that. Um, what do you mean? Don't pass me by. Don't pass me by. That's yeah. it. Sorry, just the name escaped me. Is in, in that for some reason in that one, even though it's Ringo's own kind of big song, his drums sound very clonky. Mm. Um, I guess they do in this I, again. There is a wash over this whole mix that yeah. I think is practical as much as anything else to kind of hide the fact that you know you are working around a wobbly bit of two-track tape. Well, mono tape. It's just well, mono tape. Yeah. yeah, sorry, mono tape. And 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 yeah, the, they, they you need some, to wash it out a little bit. I don't know. It, they do yeah. some work in crisping it up and, and rebalancing it a bit in that 2015 remix. Mm. Uh, which, I mean, the other main change in that is we get a different George line, which is, is strange. Yeah, yeah. So you changed it from um, life. Um, the f- yeah. original one says um, the life that we wanted you, and the second one says the love that we wanted you. Yeah, and it's much more George sounding that line and the remix. It's because I originally I couldn't tell whether that was George or Paul, which is strange because it's obviously no. George. Yeah, but, no, yeah, but, I didn't know that until you said about George's line. I was like, what George's this, line? Now in the remix, it's clearly George. Yeah, uh, and they also make the weird backwards John Lennon thing forwards in the remix at mm. the end, which is is odd. I don't know. But mm. yeah, the other thing I was going to say about production here is they get George. George does that amazing slide solo, right? But that's yeah. solo George. Yeah. That's a solo George Harrison sound. He doesn't play that sound in the Beatles. No, exactly. Well, I don't. But then, since the Beatles, he's been solo George, and now they're recording. So that's why I don't mind it myself because I think this isn't the Beatles trying to sound like the Beatles would have sounded like in Abbey Road or yeah. 
I think it's the clear the closest we'd ever get to what the Beatles sounded like, given their solo careers that had passed since then. And you know, the only person who didn't have chance to develop that in that way was was John because they were working with something from his from you know yeah. posthumous. So it was um, but yeah, I, apparently I, I, McCartney was was not mad keen on having that solo in it. So he made a, he said something about like it shouldn't sound like solo me or solo George or solo Ringo. It should yeah. sound like a Beatles song. And obviously, so he was thinking the other way. But they end up with with the George sound. And I think part of doing anything with George after the Beatles was keeping him happy. So Jeff okay. Lynne is is to keep George happy. Right. You know. Okay. So he's the guy who can do this. George will introduce him, and I'll do it if Jeff's doing it. You know, type thing. Okay. So it's it's a strange one. It's. I haven't got much to say about production. Yes, there's a massive technical challenge there that was much harder in 1994 than it would be now. Yeah. And you've got to congratulate Jeff for getting it to a point where they could even work on it, definitely. But you don't need 8 million acoustic guitars on everything, Jeff. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think you've done most of the the production for us there. I think my my main note was... um, was around the fact that I like that it doesn't sound like an old Beatles record. So I don't think it would have worked um, without George Martin, who wasn't available, so or didn't want to do it. So I think it had to sound like something of its own. And I think this and Real Love have that same feel. I don't mind it. I really, I just really like the fact that you know after kind of wilderness years with the Beatles as a young person in in high school, you know, where liking the Beatles wasn't at all cool or anything yeah they they suddenly were back again no you're totally right it's it's the sign of things to come of like the yeah and people did like these songs and they're quite rightly i'm gonna give it 70.5 for production right okay so on to the lyrics so listening back to the original demo they used um i do like how john hadn't got the bridge section words quite down yet um and it's quite nice, the circularity of Paul, well, I guess Paul and George or whoever kind of came and penciled those those final few words into the, that, that, that bridge section to finish it off kind of 20 years later. Um, you know, the whatever happened to, I think on the on the original John Lennon demo, he kind of goes, whatever happened to, doesn't he doesn't yeah, quite he, have it Yeah, he doesn't yet. have the whole thing, yeah. Uh, so that's really kind of serendipitous that, that that was kind of allowed them to almost compose together again it's it, it, you know but it's a great sentiment and it's a good it's a good choice again the, the the chance of this being a song that was available for use and them choosing this one to come back with to have that kind of line in it what happened to the life that we once knew you know it's 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 sad but it's 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 nice in a way so yeah um and like blackbird before it with this the bird motif it's kind of evocative of some sort of ascension which is obviously poignant given the the nature of it being a, yeah. a record after john's death and um and that gap to allow paul and george to kind of say that line is stirs mixed emotions i think but it's kind of amazing in a way they're brief lyrics but they're perfect for this project and song i think what do you think I, I've not much to say about the lyrics. You're right. Yeah, it's it's just it's John hammering the bird imagery round and round, isn't it? And yeah. I think I think what's sad about it is it does sound a little bit like yearning for home, like oh, I'll get back yeah. to Liverpool one day for a visit, see everyone, type thing. Which you know mm. we know ultimately Never happened. wasn't wasn't going to happen. Mm. Which is so well, that's quite sad. Yeah, it is, there's there's a certain yeah. I don't know. It's it's weird because it becomes nostalgic by vir- virtue of appearing in the nineties. But obviously, it wasn't nostalgic for him. But it was. It clearly was. 
Yeah. Well, maybe it was nostalgic, but nostalgic in a different way. Oh, it's yeah, strange. What I don't know is, I mean, they obviously did this in real love, and I don't know, is it that they had like tons and tons of half bits of records they could have used? No, no, or they, only had, it, uh, they only had a few. And so, yeah, they, I say the chance of this, the, the theme of this one and the way that it was being used, it was, um, it was, it was great. I'm going to give it um, 69 for lyrics, which gives it 73.2 overall. I will say, just before anyone does think, I, any real pro Free as a Bird head thinks I'm being really horrible about it, I mean, I was cutting everything out of every newspaper, getting <laughs> every magazine, every yeah. clipping. I was laminating pictures from newspapers to put on my wall at this time of, of mm. these men, you know, these three men were yeah. <laughs> wearing middle-aged sunglasses, yeah, doing yeah. what it promo they were doing. so and 90s when you look back at that stuff yeah. now, doesn't and it? Really? so... Yeah, it was very important and significant to me. It hasn't, uh, you know, legacy-wise, I've I've struggled with it a little bit. But, mm. you know, it's, like you say, it's, it's got an important, it's an important cultural point for a lot of people. Yeah, and the video was great too. We, yeah. we never really yeah, talk yeah. about videos because obviously they are few and far between in the, in the the for the main part of the catalogue, but yeah, yeah. The, the video was a real kind of... Uh, yeah. Record it, pause it. Yeah, it, homage back. to everything. The real, uh, you know, finders. What's the word? I spy of Beatles references. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was good. And I was when I was watching it back, I was thinking that was, must have been hard work to have made in the nineties. That, yeah, that yeah. video with the, you know the amount of um, splicing they were doing. I know again, the same existed. same as the you know you could do that stuff now easily yeah. on your phone. Yeah, probably. So. But um, yeah, then it must have been a, a real labour. Right. So next, we'll, well, hang on. Well, um, uh, the trousers. What? Who's that? What's that? Oh my God, it's the Ruttles. They wouldn't let us escape the 90s. <laughs> you know, if the Beatles are going to do something in the 90s, the Ruttles yeah. are going to do something in the 90s, and that's where the archaeology album comes out. Mm. Uh, but uh, one of the things on the archaeology album is a song called Don't Know Why. <laughs> Now, don't know why first appears actually on a Rory Bremner episode. So, okay, people not in the UK maybe will not know who Rory Bremner is. He's a impressionist, mm-hmm. satirical impressionist, let's say. So he would always do stuff about the news. He'd, he'd, uh, so this program's called Rory Bremner. Who else? And on the 29th of November 1995, so essentially, as as free as a bird is in the air now and released or available, you know. They mm. get um, Neil Innes to be Ron Nasty to rediscover a tape. Right. And the show ends at the end credits of this episode of Rory Bremner, who else, is is Ron Nasty doing Don't Know Why. Ah. A perfect parody of Free as a Bird. Uh, other than, in fact, it's got strings on it, which is not something that is on yeah. Free as a Bird. But it's, it is brilliant. It's how Neil could turn his hand to anything. And then it turns up on the archaeology album itself as well. But it has a, simil- a very similar theme, and it's very warm. Don't know why. The line, "Looking back with twenty twenty hindsight, we only did the best we could." Hmm. You know, it's sweet. Yeah, I, I, this is one of the first Ruttles ones that I'm not sure I heard. Bef- I've heard before. I've only heard a few times, and therefore forgotten. 
But with it being the Ruttles, it's so easy to immediately latch onto the the point of the song, you know, the references. Um, what do you have heard Real Love by this point? Because I feel like there's a bit of reference to them both in there. Just I don't that think gen- so. I don't not. think so. No. Um, I don't but, think they'd, they'd done it yet at this point. So. Well, I think it might be more that he's obviously... I think he's riffing off Lennon solo stuff too because of that, a yeah, bit, well, that's that being the core of it. Yeah. Skills. So yeah, it's done brilliantly as, as always, um, but, but also very distinctive as a song in its own right. Um, very charming, I think. Very nice. Yes, I prefer it to Free as a Bird. Ah, well, that's, that is, as is your uh, right, Paul. Thank you. Well, anyway, let's get on with the next one. It's just a little ditty, really. Not, not, not a big one, so we should be able to whiz through it. Um, a Day in the Life. I saw a film today, oh boy The English army had just won the war A crowd of people turned away But I just had to look Having read the book A day in the life, Paul. Well... This morning I got up um, and I had a bath and then I went back to bed because Did I'd, you had, really? I'd had some beer yesterday and <laughs> I was quite tired and I'd not had a very good night's sleep. Oh. And then I went downstairs okay. and I had some breakfast. Okay, okay, Paul. okay Paul. Uh, Day in the life. A day in the life, Paul. Now, people listening to this might not know, well, they obviously don't know you as well as I know you, mm. unlikely. I mean, I obviously some people, some people listening to this may know you very well. But mm. not the way I know you in terms of what your passion is about, perhaps the Beatles yeah. stuff. So the, I have been waiting for this to turn up for a mm. long time. <laughs> what, right. do you think I like this or something? I think you re- I reckon you like this. So I think mm. this might be, I might, this might be one of your favourites, this one. <laughs> Shall I give you the facts and figures anyway? Yes, please. Sergeant Pepper's LP, closing track, save for the inner groove. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, it's obviously Pepper comes out on the first of June '67. Officially, actually, the twenty-sixth of May, as we've discussed before. This is recorded on the nineteenth of January '67, through dates through the third of February. You have the big orchestra session on the tenth of February, and ultimately then the big piano chord session on the twenty-second of February. And there's right. so much going on in this, mm-hmm. you know this. And yet, when you come down to it, when you strip it all away to how it starts, how they have to build it up and start recording it. It's mm. so simple. It is. But it's it's a simplicity that's born of an amazing amount of confidence in the material. Mm. Because, you know, there's going to be so much we leave out with this. When we did Penny Lane, I know how much we left out because you just don't have time to talk about it yeah. without your head fizzing and going all over the place. Uh, they leave silence in a song. They write a song and just leave bloody great gaps of silence. Mm-hmm. That's the confidence you have to have to say, we'll figure something out good to go yeah. there. It's ludicrous. Mm. Uh, yeah, personnel. John plays his guitar and does his vocals. Uh, Paul plays the piano initially. George, the George Harrison credit on this. You know what George plays on this song? No. Maracas. Really? That's oh. it. Oh, at least he got on it. Yeah, Maracas and a Maraca overdub, I think. Okay. So it's so strange that this is a big monolithic song that this is. Mm. That it's George is barely on it. Yeah, yeah. Because even uh, even Ringo gets to play a piano on this one. George doesn't even play the big piano at the oh, end. Oh, right. As Ringo's doing his congas as he does on the initial recording. 
then obviously there's the drums overdubs, there's McCartney's yeah. bass, there's some tambourine overdubs. You've got Mal Evans in there with doing the counting and the alarm clock sound yeah. and being one of the piano players. You've got this 40-piece orchestra. You've got a load of guests invited in to do an alter- what, what becomes an alternative ending now yes, you can listen yeah. to. Yeah. George Martin adding harmonium notes. There's lots of stuff going on technically. There's lots of stuff going on musically. Wowzers. Yeah, it's it's um, that's all right, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and of course it's amazing. And uh, you know, you've done a lot of this, but my kind of way into the notes of this is just to kind of go through a whistle stop tour of what happens in this. You know, not what's in it, but you know how it comes together. Like you say, we start with an acoustic-led, melancholic melody that kind of echoes out along with the gentle shakers, a bit of rounded bass. Then Ringo starts to interject with his offbeat riffs. I mean, Ringo, like you were saying earlier, in reference to this, Ringo's drums in this are phenomenal. Sublime, yeah. They come in wherever they please, but they're never out of place, you know. You wouldn't know one else would put a riff where he puts them, but they just... They're weird. It's like they're storytelling drums. Yeah. They're there for dramatic emphasis rather than simple backbeat or showy, you know, showy fills. They are showy fills, but they're showy but fills in 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 like um like a, a gentle acoustic section. But it doesn't matter that you know you still, you've got this gentle kind of hypnotic acoustic stuff going on and mm. a bit of piano, and then suddenly you know big tom jazz type of drum offbeat stuff going on. Um, just almost to kind of keep on jolting you a, a bit, like you say, and maybe with the storytelling to kind of go listen. Um, yeah. Something's going to happen, you know. Don't don't feel at ease here because something's going to happen. Um, and like the same, the piano it kind of comes in. It's it you know um, it's there, but it's not there all. It's mostly the acoustic, isn't it? And it comes back in as the melody wobbles away into nothing, and is replaced by, of course, a full orchestra crescendo. You know, mm. building to fever pitch, just until the point where you think your brain and your ears might burst, and then an alarm clock. The bass is back kind of on a strict boppy kind of beat the piano and Ringo are back now all with it but now we've got Paul singing and it's a bit more vibrant and it's a bit more awake which is in line with the lyrics and there's more swing but then as soon as we're kind of getting used to that the vocal kind of bounces back into a dream so who sings the R's in that section I would have thought it was Paul but it's not Mm, yeah no one can actually decide. Okay. And, and, and so far, there doesn't seem to be any evidence confirming who it is one way or another, even on all these various issues of the, you know, yeah. early recordings and takes and bootlegs and stuff. Okay. Because I think it's John. Oh, I, I thought it was Paul. Um, only so. Maybe because he's just been singing. Yeah. But... Um, you know, the R's come in in the dream section, an epic refrain where... It's always an interesting dream when an, when your R's come in. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, you've got the dynamic attack of a bass-heavy orchestra starts to join them, doesn't it? You know, Yeah, it's just, a sort of circle of fifths section, which is such yeah. a simple chord uh, idea. You just go around sort of in fifths and then it repeats again. So like C to G, G to D, D to A, you know. Yeah. And that when you do that a couple of times, you can end up back in the other key. Yeah. After that, which is, it's simple, but it's so, ooh, yeah. Yeah, so then we go back to the beginning again, almost, with a continuation of John's melancholic bit again. And then one more final huge orchestra build. Um, and as the, and as the 
orchestra builds the kind of band behind it are kind of lost within the swell, but somehow the song is still with us, even though we've kind of lost any link by that point to the to the beat or anything because it's just the orchestra building. You still get the feeling that the song's still happening somewhere. And then we kind of get that big final climax and then bang, 16-odd pianos, whatever it is, hit the final chord. I mean, that's 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 it's exhausting just writing it out, you know, but in, yeah, a, yeah. in a just in a comprehending the amount of work that went into that song at every level. But although it is a cut and shut job, I mean, we think we all know by now, we can take for granted that people know that it's essentially two songs stuck together. You know, when they say, well, you know, why don't you just stick that bit in the middle of this bit and then we'll do this bit and then, you know, bang, perhaps it'll be the best song ever written. There's actually musically not, except for the vocal performances and Ringo's drums, there's nothing massively virtuosic in it, you know, it's no, not just, at all. That's what I'm saying about it being yeah. simple. It's it's so simple. It is at, simple. At its base. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's at its you know it origin, and that's because the thing that makes this amazing is it's that it's about the song. It's about the melody, the structure, not just the happy chance of two disparate parts making one bigger whole, but the craft to join them together in a way that made them bigger than they were individually. Mm-hmm. And I guess to write the custom links like you say to leave the, the confidence like you say to leave that gap for the orchestra the dream section to work its way out of one bit into the knowing to go into that dream section and not to do a to kind of you know flog it and keep them going around it too often too much you know yeah it's um it all comes together to achieve perhaps well i mean especially with the, the orchestra building itself it's perhaps one of the most recognizable and accomplished bits of popular music audio ever captured yes but totally yeah the whole i mean before i finish with my musical um appraisal you have to remember that this chart that i've put together is my chart of my favorite beatles music <laughs> right therefore it is possible for something to get a hundred uh and for music this gets a hundred thought it might <laughs> i had to think about it though because I thought, well, if I don't give this 100, what would anything get it? And I thought, well, if not, then what's the kind of point of having 100 as a as a top of the, the chart? If it was out of all music ever, it'd be debatable. But this is, for me, out of the Beatles. And the, the music category tends to be the more subjective, what I just think of it once it's all put together side of it. So this is getting 100 for music. Right-o. Mm. Cool. So production, Paul. <laughs> well, how long have you got yeah I mean it's it's going to be hard not to cover too much of this, the same ground as we've kind of spoken about in brief but um, let's let's right, pull out let, some me, highlights let me give you some things Gary okay, let me give you some production notes here I have yeah. got open on my lap uh, the, the Complete Beatles Recording Sessions book by Mark Lewis and the official story of the Abbey Road years yeah uh, which is a, a very important book it's one that everyone should have in their bookshelves mm-hmm and I've opened the page for the 10th of February, which is the day of the orchestra overdub, which if anyone's seen the video that goes with Day yeah. in the Life now, or the film that has been put to it, that was filmed at the time, yeah, it was like done as a party atmosphere type thing, come in costume, get a load of friends and, you know, other musicians mm. who, uh, the guys from The Fool, you know, it's a bit of a party atmosphere, a bit, little bit like a re- rehearsal for um, the sort of all you need is love approach. Mm. And they, so they do the orchestral overdubs which are, you know, recorded four times. So you don't just have a 40-piece orchestra. You've got like 160 musicians. Wow. 
Uh, but you've got 40-piece orchestra in Abbey Road. That's fine. They do orchestras all the time. They do huge orchestras. Yeah. But they're doing all sorts of st- things to make it interesting, the way they're recording it. They're having to find a method of syncing tape machines together, using a tone to drive for one to drive another. Mm. So they've got enough tracks. They're, they're using headphones as microphones. So like clipping headphones onto violins and violas. Mm. You know, so that's sandwiched against the, the body of the instrument to use those as microphones. Mm. So there's all these interesting techniques going on there as well. Whilst it's being filmed, whilst George Martin and Paul McCartney are conducting this mad orchestra, mm. leaving the engineers, to, you know, to like be got to get this right, yeah, type thing. And that's just one session. That's the orchestral overdub. Uh, it's it's insane. I will say one of the people in the orchestra, one of the French horn players, is called Alan Civil. Just keep okay. that keep that name in mind. Okay. Okay. I will do. Please do. Uh, and it's yeah, but the production of the whole song is is incredible. The yeah. way they've you know positioned mics on pianos, the way they've chosen that that effect on John's voice. Yeah. The way that you can still hear loads of silly noises in the background of the McCartney bit. You know, there's lots of yeah. weird little studio noises and speech. Just in there that makes it even more a bit sort of dreamy and unreal because it's like is this yeah. some is there someone talking to me here <laughs> you know um yeah it's it's overwhelming trying to talk about this about yeah what it is and that piano chord alone at the end yeah which is, is, is it 16 in the right ballpark is something like that isn't it pianos well it is basically honestly i've got my other book i've got one of the uh, the jerry hammock books here Right, okay, so, February 22nd, the solution, one big chord. So three pianos and one harmonium were utilised, right? Mm. Lennon played the uh, studio's challenge studio piano, McCartney and Starr played the uh, Mrs Mills upright, Mm. so they play low, uh, McCartney took the low range, Starr took the high range, Lennon played in the mid range, Mal Evans also played a piano at the same time, so presumably he was on the Steinway, takes a few takes to get it right. Mm. They do some tape speed adjustment for overdubs as well, because if you do that, then you can extend the life of the chord mm. and things like that. Each of the next two superimpositions included the three pianos and on the third and final one, the Manborg harmonium. So in the end, the last chord is composed of four tracks and 10 keyboard performances, nine pianos and one harmonium. Wow. And what they're doing is as the sound fades away, from the piano chord, as it naturally does, yeah. they're pushing the faders up. Yes. So, so to compensate for yeah. the volume going down, they're putting the recording levels up, which yeah. is why you can hear squeaky chairs yeah, yeah. And, and things like that, and it extends it. And that first time I listened through, so I've, did I, t- I don't know, I might have told this story on uh, the weekly, weekly podcast we were on, hmm. maybe, I can't remember, but the first time I listened through to Sergeant Pepper, which was on tape, yes. nice 70s tape edition of this, on my Walkman, on the headphones, in my new bedroom when the house had had an extension put on it, when I, you know, and I, we were finally not sharing a room anymore. And mm. I didn't know, you know, I'd listened to plenty of Beatles, but I'd never listened all the way through. And just lying there on my bed as this chord died away, feeling like someone had just taken hold of my brain and just thrown it into space. Yeah. And I'll never forget that sensation. Never, mm. ever. And the fact that then the inner groove happened on the tape but it only happened once yeah which was a creep the, the chill that went down my even, spine <laughs> <made> <laughs> even less 
probably weirder than it being on a repeat because you've just like, ah, it's before you've understood what's happening, it's gone again rather than going, oh, hang on, it's a loop. Oh, I see, it's just a noise. You just have to listen to it once and then end. Yeah. So, you know, there's... there's I have a, a memory of, of, of this um, on my bed in, in um, at a mum's house in, in, in Stoke and uh, listening to this on the walk. And when John says he didn't notice that the lights had changed, and the way it has changed... There's an echo and reverb on that word that kind of resonates with the way he, he sings it. And I remember f- like feeling it going through me, you know, like through my chest, like yeah. an energy. It was just like it gone, it, it evoked a physical response in me, the way it, um, just the audio had it to hit something. Um, yeah, I can barely listen to this song without wanting to cry out of just some kind of sheer joy at the the human realization of the concept of music. Yeah. There's, there's mm-hmm. like, it's not particularly we haven't even got onto lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Well, it's not particularly anything other than I just, the, 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 the resonances, the tones that, the, the, the real fundamentals are captured within this somehow. Um, there's a quality to the song that's kind of born out of the kind of balance of echo space, distance, placement, contrast, you know, from the softness of that opening guitar to the climax, it takes you through the lot of them, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's all production. So, you know, we have this big, big production like you've spoken about, and we have this minutiae, like just the way one syllable sounds. It's it, it's all as important. Um, But yeah, it, but you never feel... It, and of course, you've got um the, the big distinction between the two sections, but you never feel that it's not one song, it's a glorious, complete, consistent thing from start to finish. Now, when it comes to scoring, as I suppose I should move on to, because like you say, we'll be on this forever, yeah. is um, its nearest competition in the chart is something like Strawberry Fields, because that's currently the highest yeah. scorer. Now, um, which is the two versions of the same song being joined together to make a whole, you know, as this, this is two different two songs, songs being joined yeah. together to make a whole but not two different takes from two different sessions they they knew they were doing it when they went into it so yeah i think it's funny with this one i, I think because it this one is a real workhorse of production but it's not got a huge amount of it's not got a huge amount of tricks and stuff in it because it's it's just the actual volume of work needed to make it what it is so where strawberry fields has got some very interesting stuff going on i'm going to give it the same score as strawberry fields but for different reasons i think so it's going to get 95 for production right okay so now on to lyrics so um for the main part we essentially have a lennon scrapbook again don't we really we have lazy lennon reading the newspaper <laughs> yeah but that's you know he's got an eye for a story hasn't he it's not like he's just going fridges two for one you know he's um he's He's picking them. He's curating his world expertly. Phrases, scenes, stories taken from the telly, the newspaper, the world collage together to create a kind of haunting narrative that seems to hint at a kind of a sadness about the futility of it all. It's bleak. You know, it's, this is it's this bleak, is it's, yeah. it's pretty bleak. You know, you know, English Army had just won the war, and if you've seen, and people take that as a reference to him being in the film How I Won the War, which obviously just mm. filmed prior to these sessions. Yeah, uh, which in itself is very bleak. Brilliant right. film, very very I, bleak. You no, know, I've never seen it. It's it's yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, and then the things he's picked out of the newspapers to talk about. Yeah, car crashes. But but at the same time, what what is psychedelic? What is weird about this? It's actually it's quite 
it's the lyrics aren't psychedelic and weird no, particularly. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's they, they come all over. Yeah, they come from, but that's what makes them so. Yeah. By virtue of them being so normal, they become psychedelic and weird because you're, you're, you're decontextualizing them and, and taking the everyday yeah. and putting it in the wrong place, i.e. in this song. Yeah. So the Daily Mail is the 17th of January 1967, where he's reading about... Um, Tara Brown, the, the heir to the Guinness fortune, who, who died in the car crash. Mm. and But actually, the headline isn't about Tara Brown dies in car crash. Mm. It's about Guinness heir babies stay with grandmother, and it's all about the high court ruling about where, the, where his children mm. were going. He was obviously thinking about they They knew Tara Brown. They knew this guy who blew his mind out in the car. Okay. So it's not actually reading that headline story. He's reading a follow-up story. Mm there as well and then obviously we've got the most famous one which is the holes in the roads four thousand holes in the road in blackburn lancashire or one twenty-sixth of a hole per person according to a council survey you right. should put that bit in okay yeah why did i think that well, I, th- I had some thing in my mind that that was about heroin no because people keep saying it is because it's about fixing you know like it's, it's this right. idea of like a, a hole in i don't know like a hole in, well i thought it meant like track marks on people's arms yeah. you know holes from well that that has been posited but it's not true. Oh, I it's literally that was, that was the news story. So it's just literally about potholes. It's about potholes in the road. Oh, okay. It's that <laughs> prosaic. It's that simple. But, the, but it's something, this is the thing, like you say, it's that, it's that juxtaposition of those words with the music that it sang to. And, and then, you know, um, and there's a kind of, because of the way he chooses to frame those stories, he's not just reading them verbatim. He kind of gives us a kind of, um, w- takes us through it with the weary eyes of a kind of omnipotent and in a way impotent observer and able to do anything about these things. They just are, you know, and then we have Paul who comes bounding out of bed in the middle of it on his way to work, gets as far as the bus and then drifts away into a dream, which feels like he's either the dream of the verse or the verse is the dream of the middle section. (laughs) And I know again, it's prosaic. It's very normal, but is, What's the relation to the two of them? I know they, they aren't related, but when you... But the song's uh, called A Day in the Life, isn't it? So yeah. It's, it's scenes from A Day in the Life, whereas Paul's giving you an individual walkthrough. Yeah. Lennon's picking out... Bits well, and... Yeah, yeah. The Day in the Life is the 17th of January 1967 today, and these are the things that are happening. So I like the, the idea that like whoever's having the dream wakes up and it's Paul... And he goes off to go to work, and all that stuff about what he was what reading in the news yesterday has been swirling around in his head in his dream. And he gets to the bus, someone speaks, and then he realizes he's still asleep and he wakes up again. Like, you know, when you have a false start dream where you kind of dream that you've woken up and you're back, and then you're back with John, and he's still actually asleep and he's still got stuff whirling around in his head from the day before. They shouldn't have ended it with a big piano chord, they should have just ended it with John going, And then I woke up. <laughs> or did I? Or am I? <laughs> And I was still holding the amulet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, anyway, um, it's great. I, I I love it. It's got that Sergeant Pepper thing all over it. With with the prosaic meets the psychedelic meets the the, the epic and dramatic. Um, they 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 had these lyrics before they smooshed them together, didn't they? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but either way, the result is phenomenal, and I'm giving it 97 for lyrics. Yeah, which gives it 97.3 overall. <laughs> So we'll see how that does. <laughs> I think this might be unassailable. Well, yeah, possibly. Um, anyway, 
Well, that's that one. Um, oh, before we move on to anything else, I will just say, of course, it was banned by the BBC. Oh, because of the turn, turn you on. Because of their love to turn you online. Yeah. You know? And um, there's a, there was a letter from Frank Gillard, the head director of sound broadcasting, sent to Sir Joseph Lockwood at EMI to say, well, I never thought the day would come when we would have to put a ban on an EMI record, but sadly that is what has happened over this track. We have listened to it over and over again with great care, and we cannot avoid coming to the conclusion that the words, I'd love to turn you on, followed by that mounting montage of sound, could have a rather sinister meaning. <laughs> It doesn't really say what that it is. I think it's you know it's yeah. just sort of like oh is it is it drugs? It's drugs, isn't it? Drugs, drugs. Mm. So. so that's you know. But you know, there's lots and lots of information out there about day in the life. It's not you don't need me to tell you. <laughs> no, no. It's it's been covered quite well. Yes, it has indeed. Well, and we've now added our voices to that coverage. Yeah. Um, and so we. Oh, hang on. Well. Uh... The trousers. What? Oh, again? Another one. In this episode of all of... <laughs> Bloody hell. It's the Ruttles again. Right. Oh, 1970s Ruttles this time. It's cheese and onions. I have thought that the world was unkind. Cheese and onions. I mean, this is one of the key Ruttles tracks, this one. Mm. You know, it's obviously on the original soundtrack album and in the film and that. Um, <laughs> this is more or less a parody of... It's got a bit of solo John hints in it as well, yeah. a little bit, but it's mainly, I think, a day in the life, isn't it? Because it's got the orchestral swells and the big joke being, instead of a big chord at the end, you just have one note, <laughs> which is perfect. And it's something... You know, if day in the life is is very day-in-the-life stuff, mundane mm. stories. This is about the flavours, cheese and onion. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'd never, I'd never realised that actually, yeah, cheese and onion is quite an uninteresting flavour. And I guess if you liken them to the lyrics being quite mundane, in a way, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's very funny. I mean, obviously, what happens is Eric Idle uh, is presenting Saturday Night Live in April of 1977, mm. so before the Ruttles stuff all comes together. Uh, and he, he gets Neil on as Ron Nasty to play Cheese and Onions. And mm. then this thing gets bootlegged and turns up on bootlegs as a Lennon, as a missing Lennon song. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. But I remember seeing the first time I saw Neil Innes live, he did this. And even mm. though I knew what was coming, the joke when he does the C-H-E-E-S-E-A-N-D-O-N-I-O-N-S-O-N-O. Mm. But I, he just does it so well. It's such a good joke to deliver. And every time I've seen him do it, which sadly will never be anymore. Mm. Um, it was always funny. It always worked as a gag because mm. it's it's really good music, yeah. and it's and it's a fun pattern of sounds, and it's yeah, ending in that very Lennon esque. Oh no, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Bless him. Yeah, it's great. And I, I never really thought of this as being linked to a day in the life, but of course, once you say that and you listen, you go, oh yes, it's got some of the um, d- distinctive um, piano. Um, Motifs going on, echoes of the verses, um, and the big mad build at the end, of course. Yeah, and the drums have got, uh, yeah, yeah. sort of in the style of. Yeah, but it has a bit of, like, say, solo Lennon and some of the other piano ones, you know, a little bit Hey Jude, Sexy Sadie, maybe, but they're 
again, that's because he's he's pulling it all together. Um, but it has its own unique elements that set it apart as a master of composition in its own right. So another good Ruttles interjection. Next, then, out of the pick bag, we have Misery. I've lost her now for sure I won't see her no more It's gonna be a drag misery Misery, Paul. Well, I'm in quite a good mood today, actually. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, this is a bit different then from the two we've done so far. Yeah. We're back to Please Please Me, the first album, 22nd of March, 1963. We're back to the big recording session on the 11th of February, 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, other than the 20th of February where George Martin overdubs the piano part, that's you know this is done in that session. Mm-hmm. It's a song that's sort of... Oh, it's obviously a Lennon-McCartney number, mm. second track on the album, but it's also one that they wrote intending it to be for someone else. Okay. Um, it's as simple as it can, get, it can be. It's John on his acoustic singing, Paul on his bass singing, George on an electric, Ringo on his drums, and then George Martin putting on this, uh, everyone's favourite, you know, very speeded, slowed down, half-speed recorded piano overdub later. Ah, uh, that's what it is. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting one. One minute and forty eight seconds long. This song is. Do we, who who they intended to sell it to? Or right, well, so this is written. This is good. This Gary, you'll like okay. this. Go on then. So this is written with an eye on it on them selling it to Helen Shapiro. Right. So Helen Shapiro, they were on tour with at the start of sixty three. Okay. Uh, she was a sixteen year old singer. She'd been, had a hit since she was fourteen. And they wrote this song thinking, oh, maybe Helen Shapiro could have this. So we've been on tour together with her and a bunch of other people. And yeah. they offer, they write it, uh, they begin writing it, rather, backstage at the King's Hall, Stoke-on-Trent. Oh, this is a gruesome legacy. Legacy! We have legacy, everybody! <laughs> Just shouting that out to Stoke, so put so, a sign up. So, you know, run an oat cake up the flagpole and um, yeah. salute Helen Shapiro. Yeah. This is one of the weirdest wrote- sentences I've ever said. <laughs> And also, I'm thinking they wrote the song "Misery" in Stoke-on-Trent. That's just real. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah. But obviously, she didn't record it. No. But someone else who was on that tour, Kenny Lynch, hmm. who was a sort of stand-up singer, all sorts guy who was yeah, around yeah. for a long time. He did record it, and he becomes the first person to record a cover of a Lennon McCartney song. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna cast any aspersions on why they wrote. Misery in Stoke, because Stoke's a lovely place. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> We've both performed at the King's Hall, haven't we, with like school uh, concerts and things? King's Hall, yeah. Yeah, King's Hall, definitely, yeah. yeah. I've um, been there for lots of things. It's, it's a nice, it's a good venue. Um, yeah, so Misery is not one I spent that much time with. Uh, nice to get acquainted with it, um, of what there is of it, because like I say it's very short. And it's funny that you say it was written for someone else, because... My note is it's it walks a strange line. This one it's always somewhere between um, a kind of bit a bit doo woppy, but also very pop, almost Cliff Richard and the Shadows level of pop. You know, you know, there's there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a very it, much more poppy than the Beatles would obviously go on to be in the way they wrote songs. Obviously, they'd they'd re- redefine pop around them rather than sound pop. I think. Yes. Um, and it's got a bit of doo woppy stuff with some of the chord changes, but we have that really interesting chorus. 
with that descending piano bit that you said that George Martin was doing. Um, but then before we know it, it's kind of over. So the catchiest bit of the song, I think, starts to happen in, towards the fade out when they're repeating the misery line with John doing kind of doo-woppy la-la-las and bits of that. I don't think it's doo-wop. Doo-wop would be more vocal group stuff. I think you're thinking more of like um, the sort of clean-cut sort of stars. I mean, on one hand, you've got people like, uh, um, I don't know, Neil Sedaka doing Carol and things. Songs that have that la-la-la-la-la yeah, stuff that's in the it. Kind of thing. Yeah, that, yeah, that type yeah. of thing. And it's clearly John taking the piss. Yeah, yeah, that's what doing he's, that he's, he's doing end. that, isn't it? Yeah. So they knew it was exactly like you say, they were doing a, a, a job of work for a pop song. Yeah. And, and I then think it, it suits can, them to try it and record it themselves. Yeah, why not? Yeah, especially when they they must have been like, oh, we've got to do a whole album in like a day. What have we got? Um, and what's saleable as well. So they didn't know which ones were going to really hit home, did they, at that point? Because it was their first no, real no, big stab no. of it. So yeah, there's not a great amount to say about it. It's interesting. I think it would have made almost any other band at the time a hit song if they were putting their all into it. And it, if it wasn't the... The Beatles, who had so many others to choose from, so much better that were so much more in their their kind of their style. Um, they could because they could and did do better than this on that same album. So this just goes to show the range of things they were very capable and and already working with to see where they they fit. You know, in the uh, in the world of music. So right at the start of their career, I'm going to give it 39 for music because it's 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 all right, but it's it's fine. More. It's basically fine. It's basically fine. So production, um, I like how you can hear the fader being pushed up after the opening broken chord on the piano and guitar. I like how there's obviously a bit of a join there, kind of the way that they've done it. And, um, you know, he does his big intro, doesn't he? And then you kind of hear the, they must have had to bring something down and then it all comes up and you hear the ambient of the studio kind of emerge. Yes. But like a lot of Please Please Me, there's a there's a lot of reverb on the vocals with Big George going for that kind of certain sound. But I think it works okay on this one, especially... Um, John's vocal works well. I think on some of the on George's songs, he's a bit drowned in it. With this one, it kind of works with John's vocal, uh, and also with that piano break having that same type of plate echo going on. So, yeah. what, why has he done that piano break very speed? Because it's not anything complicated. It just goes ding, da ding, da ding, da ding. No, I know, but I think he wanted the sound. So what he's done is he's what well, they'd normally record at fifteen inches per second on the tape speed. That's a normal. <laughs> speed that tape would run yeah. in the studio for this they recorded it at 30 inches per second so he could he could halve the speed mm. um play the piano and i think his, he was his intention was yeah maybe i need to you know, it'll make it a little easier for me to go do 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 i mean he's perfectly capable of that George yeah. Martin. but i think he, he had his eye on how that would harmonically change doing yeah. it this way oh, he was doing so, that so early wasn't he yeah and you know as we've said I mean, even in that outro of Day in the Life, that big chord at the end, he's using some very speeding and half speeding to get new piano sounds out yeah. of it. So it's it starts here and just yeah, goes through a, a through line through their entire career. Because you didn't know at this point, oh, I mean, you may have had a, a, a an inclination that you was producing someone who was going to be important, but, you know, it was another day in his job, wasn't it? He must yeah, have been. totally. Well, good old George. So, um, yeah, so the rest of the band sit nicely behind the kind of echoiness of this song. I do like it. I think it, I think this is this one works really well. I'm going to give it 52 for production. Smashing. Lyrics. It's some words. <laughs> and the main one is the word misery. I think you get one song per word. You know, someone says, the word is misery. And they go, the world is getting me down. Misery. Da -da 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 -da. Misery. And this is the one they did about the word misery. I think that's it, isn't it? 
Essentially, yeah. I mean, yeah. Paul said later, it was our first stab at a ballad and had a little spoken preface. So maybe at one point it would have been, oh, now she's gone away. Now, you know, this type oh, of thing. Oh, did they have did they have that? Bit, again, like, I'm thinking about, like, um, oh, Carol, and things like that. Yeah. Which, oh, Carol, I am such a fool. You know, that sort of yeah. thing. It might have had something like that in it. <laughs> it. It was co-written. I don't think either of us dominated on that one. It was just a job. You could have called us hacks, hacking out a song for someone. But, yeah. right, question. Okay. If they were giving this to Helen Shapiro... Mm. Right. I'm the kind of guy who never used to cry. Mm. The world has treated me bad misery. So mm. what should she have done? Would she have done... I'm the kind of He's the of kind gal. of guy who really makes me cry or something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or well, I'm the kind of gal who isn't very... Pal. No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I can't think so of So I wonder if it had, had quite different lyrics at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an interesting one. But yeah, I think they've said it themselves there with the, the being hacks. <laughs> but I think that's fine. That's how you learn. 36.5 for lyrics, I'm going to give it, um, which gives it 42.5 overall. I will say, I think the thing to take away from this that's really fun is the voice. It's John and Paul singing together, which is always a, a delight. You yeah. know, it's lovely how they're singing together in, in unison and then they split off into the harmony for the keywords. And that's lovely. Yeah. So it's yeah. got things to recommend it, but yeah, it's a, a job of work. Yeah, why not? Next then, almost as if it's come out of the random pick to balance out a long episode, which it hasn't, it really is truly random. Wild Honey Pie. Wild honey pie, Paul. That's how I like my honey pie. I like them sourced from the hedgerows and things like that. I like people to go foraging for my honey pies. Yeah, organic. Yeah, an organic wild honey pie. Mm. Well, wild honey pie, yeah, you're right, in terms of (laughs) balancing out some of the stuff we've been talking about here. I I just Mm. mentioned about uh, misery being, what, one minute, 48 seconds. This is 53 seconds long. Yeah. There's only one song shorter than this in the Beatles catalogue. Okay. and so this is recorded after the session for Mother Nature's Son by McCartney on his own. Oh, is it? Right, okay. Yeah. So it comes out on the White Album, 22nd of November, 1968. So that session was on the 20th of August, 1968. He's got a bit of time at the end of the session. So he plays a kick drum, sings, and does his acoustic guitar all at the same time. Right. And then superimposes some more acoustic guitar, some more drums, and some backing vocal shouts and things like that. Um, and... Yeah, there's a couple of interesting production techniques in here, but otherwise it's literally a song from Rishi Kesh, apparently, that just used to sing along. So it started out as a sort of sing-along song in that they'd okay. sit around with guitars in. I'm sure they weren't screaming at each other in Rishikesh, <laughs> having a day of meditation and getting out the guitars and screaming wild honey pie at each other. <laughs> but yeah, so apparently Patty Boyd liked it, which right. is one of the reasons he, he, he did it, and they actually said, oh yeah, we'll put it on the album. Um. Yeah, good cover version by the Pixies, though. Oh, I've never, never heard that. I'll have to go and listen to it. Is theirs the 53 seconds, or do they make more of it? I think it's, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll try not to talk for longer than the 53 seconds that, that makes up this song. Um, yeah, because it's, it's hard. There's not much to talk about. It's a funny little idea that is fun for less than a minute. It is literally some wobbly chords descending chromatically down until they resolve. 
And then I was going to say that the Beatles all sing Honey Pie in Silly Voices, but it's just Paul singing it in Honey yeah. Pie in Silly Voices. Um, I like it. Um, it barely registers as a song in its own right, just because of, it, it's some fun. You know, if if in another world, uh, another bit of programming, this could have been easily tagged on to the end of something. Um, yeah, uh, and being counted as the end of a track rather than the track in itself. But then, that said, even the Beatles, or in this case, Paul, having a bit of daft fun is great to listen to. Having and a daft some, laugh. Having a daft laugh on that. It's great to listen to, and there's something slightly hypnotic about this. Um, and I'm sure it would have freaked a few people out listening on headphones, having maybe eaten some mushrooms or something stupid. I'm sure, because it's um, it is a, it's psychedelic in its stuff. And yeah, so, but musically, yeah, it's just some acoustic old guitars going down a chord and being a bit wobbly and then some singing so i'm gonna give it 31 for music mm. production um so i like that that bit you've already told me really that i didn't know that you're sitting there like the one-man band singing and doing that that bass drum um i like the wobbliness of the guitars I, how much of it is it just him playing it vibra vibrato and how much of it is kind of studio tricks because there's a particularly it's, fxy type of wobbly yeah one, it's a it? bit of both so he's he's playing with this extreme string bending technique yeah so he's deliberately pushing the strings, you know, to, to get this weird effect. Yeah. But then they're recording it, so they're having to physically touch the recording head or uh, the tape uh, that's to cause it, it to wobble. Uh, clever, clever. Which apparently when they came to do the remix for the anniversary edition, they found that the only way they could replicate it was to do exactly the same thing. Oh, there wasn't see. like a digital replication of, of it. So, the, yeah, because the master would have just been normal. Well, presumably, as uh, well, the individual tracks before they pushed it onto the final master, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So it's uh, yeah, so it's it's a, a bit of studio trickery, and um, <laughs> it's literally someone pushing some tape, that's and Paul doing yeah. some weird string bending, and really that's it. The only thing, other thing, really to mention about that production is, it's so he's done Mother Nature's Son. Mm. Um, he also demos another song in that session called Etc., which has never been released. Yeah. It's never seen the light of day, and apparently. If you look at like people asking Paul about it, he seems to think it's rubbish and he just want, doesn't want people to hear it, right. which is very unlike him. And it's also unlike him. It's unlike Beatles stuff to not have not leaked, mm. other than Carnival of Light, you know. Mm. But uh, apparently, etc. is the song that eventually, in a new format, becomes a song called Thingamy Bob, which is recorded oh. by the Black Dyke Mills Band okay. yeah. for the Apple label. But, but yeah, so etc. Which I expected, we I think people expected to turn up on the white album box set. Never did, but yeah, mm. apparently demoed that as well. But he doesn't like it, so it's never turned up. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, right. Um, it was um, lyrics now, wasn't it? I said it was forty for production. So you didn't say. It was oh no. Well, it was. I'm giving it forty for production because despite its um, its its shortness, it has a. It serves a nice little sonic purpose as a filler between songs that's a bit weird and wobbly, so, you know. It's the bloody Beatles white album. <laughs> right, so lyrics. Honey pie, I love you. There we go. Um, <laughs> no, although it's only um, five words, I'm going to score it 20, and because those five words tease it, a little continuity between songs, don't they? I've written the word continuity. Yeah. Oh, well, there we go. Yeah, I've, I've literally put, there's not much to it, but it's a bit of conceptual continuity in Beatles world. It's another song that references another song. Exactly. Almost yeah, and it's a return. Around, you know. it's, well, it's, it's, this yeah. comes after Honey Pie, doesn't it, on the record? Uh, I can't remember. I Off think so. So it's a bit like it. I, well, I, I, might, I might be wrong. If it is, if, well, either way, it's kind of like a, a reprise, really. You know, um, a reprise, even. 
Um, just to have that honey pie motif is just, it's just interesting. It makes you think, is there a larger world at play? So yeah, 30, um, I said 20 for, for lyrics, so it gives it 30.3 overall, which is not bad for No, it. Wild Honey Pie comes before Honey Pie. Does it? Yeah. Oh, well, it's, either, it's foreshadowing then. Yes, there you go, see? Yeah. So, finally then, for no one. You want her, you need her, and yet you don't believe her when she says her love is dead, you think she needs you. For no one, Paul. I can't think of anything to say to that. It would be too bleak, I think, if I tried to make a joke about that. A song from Revolver, which is uh, released on the 5th of August, 1966. This is recorded on the 9th and 16th of May, 66, and on the 19th of May for the horn overdub, which Mm -hmm. is overdubbed by a musician called Alan Civil, who I mentioned earlier. And I'm glad you didn't make me remember, (laughs) because I'd forgotten. You I didn't call him Alan Marlin. I had him Ken, Ken Polite? <laughs> that was it. Um, yeah, so we've just come from a, a proper McCartney throwaway mm. to a very, very different type of McCartney song. Mm-hmm. The only Beatles on this are Paul and Ringo mm-hmm. and then Alan Civil doing the horn solo. So McCartney plays the piano, adds a clavichord, does the nice vocals, plays his bass. Ringo does the drums, adds some cymbal, cymbal overdubs, maracas and tambourine. Yeah. Which is a remarkable not amount of... Remarkable not amount of stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. not a remarkable Absolute. amount of stuff for a song that is so brilliant. Yeah. Yes, yeah, indeed. And it's in B, which is a very interesting key to play in on a piano piece, mm. really. Penny Lane's in B as well, so that's, it must be something that Carney was, was doing. Uh, well, we have another... Notes um, thing there because I think I've, I, I have notes about like Penny Lane. Um, it's another poor song that has to kind of follow its own melodic conclusions. Mm. You, set, you set it off running, and this song has to do what it does because he's found the relationship between the melody and the chords that kind of has to happen. So, um, but anyway, I, I've jumped a note because of you mentioning Penny Lane. Uh, first thing that I realised when I listened back to it is I forget how fast it is, actually. It's 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 an intrinsically sad song that I would imagine to be slow, but it's, it's quite pacey. Yeah. It's, it, it kind of, it, it moves on. Um, but yeah, it, it has this, um, he has this way of not just writing a melody um, over the nice chords he's put together, but finding the melody that has to exist over those chords in that place. There's no question of wrong choices here when it comes to how the melody was on it was going to be there's no part of it where you think hmm maybe or hmm that's a bit you know I, I don't know how to put that in better words when you write songs there's always choices you make isn't it you know so yeah, writing yeah. songs is making lots of choices writing music is right is, is essentially lots and lots of choices perhaps narrowed down by the structure conventions of what you're writing the key you're writing it in whatever but still you have to make them and it's over and over again when Paul does these kind of songs like um Yesterday and, and Mother's Nature's Son and Penny Lane and this, he just it feels like they're all made for him because he never, he rarely demonstrates ever making a wrong one or one that you think well that'll do. 
Yeah. It's just like I mean, he has done in his career, and there's there's, there's weird B sides, and there's some album yeah. tracks in his, his career that aren't you know to this sort of standard. But you're entirely right that for so much of what he writes, it feels like not to it's like divine intervention. Yeah, exactly, but he's, it's like, he almost describes it like that. Sometimes it's, it's like he's interview. pulled one thing out of the air and he's pulled another thing out of the air, and every time he reaches for something. Yeah, it's the it's, two things that are supposed to be together: the backing and the 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 melody, or you know, yeah. whatever the words in the melody, or whatever it is. It's it's just a remarkable skill from a remarkable songwriter. Yeah, and he just has to, and then he's been blessed with the voice that he's got, you know, and everything yeah. else. Lucky, lucky Spud, isn't he? So, yeah. um, I I sang this song um, to get into the county choir. I did this as an audition piece. Um, anyway, I hope you did a, a vocal imitation of the horn part. <laughs> I got a kazoo out at that point. Now, um, yeah, but musically, we just we, we have the piano. Um, is it piano, harpsichord, piano the, and clavichord, and, and clavichord, and they're doubled up, aren't they? Um, for a lot of it, yeah. So the clavichord is like a tiny mini harpsichord with a slightly different mechanism for how the strings are plucked. Yeah. It was almost like a practice instrument in in harpsichord days. And clavichord. Make- Good funk music, don't they? You get well, the, yeah, and then actually the the sound of clavichords is then replicated electronically in the in the sixties, which becomes mm. a big part of the sound of the seventies funk movement. Sixties mm. and seventies funk is these electric clavy sounds, but the original clavichord is is like it's like a blade hits the strings to make the sound, so it's a very brittle sounding thing. Yeah, uh, and it was they were quite small, very often in sort of ornate boxes that you could fold the lid down on them, and they just look like mm. a small sideboard, as opposed mm. to a harpsichord being a full size. Yeah, you know, almost piano-like thing. So yeah, so yeah, it's got you got those in the bass accompanying the melody in a very complementary manner that occasionally joins in with it. So the the basses are very composed, which is always a word I come back to when Paul's pretty much calling the shots and everything. You know, the bass is doing you know following the chords, the descending patterns, and the passing notes, but occasionally it kind of goes with the melody, you know, as well. Um, yeah, it, it has a lot in common with Penny Lane, this song, actually, having them coming up close to get together in the episodes in the way that the chords descend and the melody moves around with it and the, the way the bass, you know, um, yeah, 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 you, you weaves right, it together. Yeah. Um, he does do a little fluff on the bass, though. There's a little fluff in the last verse. I know, it's kind of half hits a note and doesn't yeah, get yeah. it right. Yeah. Um, that's the only only part of it that um, I can find that... That doesn't sound quite right, but Ringo's drums just after having talked about Day in the Life and how good yeah. Ringo is in that. In this, he's played so sensitively mm, for the piece, soft. which is the other side of the skill of of someone like Ringo. You know, he, he can do a Day in the Life. He can do this, yeah, and, and um, all the all the floor, the floor rocking stuff is just intrinsic anyway. Yeah, but he can be sensitive and, and and careful like this, and and it's great. And of course, we have that magnificent um, French horn solo. We um, do. Which is perfect, you know, one of the nicest musical interludes, I think, um, in in a pop song. Um, as far as I guess for French horn, I don't know how many there are, but um, there's that was that Paul Pend or George Martin? Well, Penn? yeah. So the that's McCartney humming it, yeah, and Martin Big George writing it down. Yeah. I mean, technically, it's too high for the instrument. It's 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 pushing the French horn a bit like again with Penny Lane. He pushed the instrument, the yeah, yeah. trumpet, as hard as he could. But I just think it's beautifully recorded. I mean, this is straying into into my my one real note in production is the mm. horn part is so beautifully recorded and mixed. It it's, is. If it, it's not a wash with reverb, it sounds so natural. 
Oh, yeah. It's yeah, like he do. stood next to you, Alan Civil, constantly over your shoulder. You can hear the... You can hear the brassness of the brass. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I'll round off music with saying it's 86 for music. Mm-hmm. So production, more choices, this time with accompaniment, how to capture it, how far to go, when to hold back, like with Ringo's drums. Um, I've no doubt that Paul, um, McCartney was responsible for a lot of that, along with George Martin. Yep. But that's all under the cost of production anyway. It doesn't matter if it's the artist who's saying it or not. It's the producer and the artist producing the song. It's it's whatever gets the song produced. Um, so I love the the combo with the piano and the the, um, the clavi, um, clavinet, clavichord, the rounded bass. You know the bass in the Beatles. It's forever spoiled me as a mu- musician because I expect all music to have bass you can hear. That for a start you can hear because a lot of modern music kind of mixing presumes it needs to just be there and almost felt rather than heard. But I like to hear the note that it's playing if it's good. Um, right up there for you to, you know, as a part of the actual kind of composition of the piece, and that uh, doesn't just play the roots. It's almost a classical bass part that's yes, been played yeah. on electric, so they're capturing the bass in that way. You know, you would record it differently for this than you would, like, say, something like um, like the rockery stuff. That, you know, with the same with the drums. rockery, rockery, <laughs> a nice garden, yeah, <laughs> um, some alpine plants, um, and a recording studio, yeah, and. Uh, half a violin bass or whatever he's playing it on in this but anyway they capture it in a way that makes sense and the drums and percussion are just there not getting in the way um but essentially essential really and then the timbre and the crispness of that french horn like you said is spot on there's there's not i mean is there something any more notes to add to the way that that horn was recorded other than it's just no, really no, well done i just think it is it's just beautifully done and I, I like the idea though that they they did it and and mccartney afterwards was like alan i think we can do that again and Alan Civil's like, I'm not doing that again. You write notes like that. It's like, well, he has played it perfectly, luckily. You know. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so... Oh, he, he, had a, he had a bit of a... He was like, if I, I'm not going to... I can't hit that note every time. Oh, You're I lucky. See, right. you know. Oh, I see, right. When you said he write notes like that, I thought you meant like you'd given him a note on, um, on his performance. I thought he was having a go at him. <laughs> no, it's like he literally wrote musical notes that I can't hit. Yeah. He, yeah. he managed it and he's like, you've got it. That's it. That's the take kind of thing. Good on him. Standing up to Paul McCartney. Um, 74 for production anyway. Mm-hmm. Lyrics. So we've all been there. At least most of us have. And if you haven't, then bully for you. But most of us have had a, most of us have had a, at least had a breakup, if not a bad breakup, even if it was the folly of youth magnifying it beyond all proportion. Yeah. But that that feeling that no matter how bad it makes you feel, how much it hurts, and how much you wanted to stop and go back to how it was, and for it all not to be true, when it just can't be that it's over, that's it, all that stuff. And worse than that, the other person doesn't seem in in the least bit bothered and has already moved on. He's just captured all that in just under two minutes and then delivered it with a French horn solo. Yes, you know it's devastating in a way. This of, of the songs. Yeah, well, I mean, this. Can you guess what the origin story of this is? Jane Asher. Yeah, yeah. It, McCartney's memory is. I suspect it was about another argument. So it, it's he writes it while they're he's on holiday with Jane skiing in Klosters in Switzerland, mm. uh, March nineteen sixty six, and it was originally called Why Did It Die, and the, you know there's you can see some of his draft lyrics for it if you go looking for them. Mm. You wait, you're too late. As you're deciding why the wrong one wins, the end begins and you will lose her. So things like that. It's. Mm. I think he tailored it 
to a much better lyric than than why did it die which is a yeah a bit crass anyway and it turns into something quite like a, a almost like a kitchen sink drama yeah you know it's very it's very real it's very sad it's not this is not you know hollywood weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth this is this is hard dark day-to-day sadness yeah that you've got to get through like something out of a british kitchen sink drama film of the period indeed i'll just just say if you can hear mad wailing in the background talking about the wailing of hollywood that that's um, just my, my wife and daughter playing thundercats somewhere um, i can't hear it but i wish i could <laughs> yeah um just so you know because there's no way i can remove that from the from the same yeah um I think the line, there will be times when all the things she said will fill your head, you won't forget her, is is just, you know... It's a good summary what, of stupid brains. Yeah. It's like, I, think, I don't need this in here anymore, brain. We don't need that feeling. We don't need that recollection. And the associated, you know... And the brain goes, oh, okay, let's have more. That's like when I was awake at four o'clock this morning, it's lucky that my brain just basically goes, what Beatles thing do you want to think about, Paul? Let's think about Beatles songs and play the same three lines round and round in a circle in your brain mm. or something like that um but yeah if you ever s- slip into recollections of unhappy times it's like i don't need this this doesn't yeah. help but having said that you know um you could always say actually you probably will move along with your life and after a while you'll start to wonder how you're ever so bothered and won't think about it much but that doesn't make as yeah. good a song um it would but it would perhaps have helped soften a few things to overly emotional young men trying to get over breakups and listening to this song on purpose to make themselves cry in order to try and purge the pain from their soul catharsis yeah um but yeah it's it's it conjures up um any times like that especially when it comes to relationships but it, it's very good uh, lyrics, very good lyrics. 87 for lyrics this gets. Which okay, do you, do you want to know, sorry, before you give us the final score, Gary, for mm-hmm. this song, do you want to know what John thought of it? Did he not like it? No, he loved it. Oh, good. Well, One nice. of my favourites of his, a nice piece of work, he said. Oh, that's lovely. I didn't, I was surprised, I would have been surprised if he did not liked it. Um, it would have seemed a bit mean of him. <laughs> well, um, oh, really? John being mean. John being mean. I Performatively only... mean for, for uh, interview purposes. Yeah. I thought the only thing Paul did was yesterday. Um, so that was a how do you sleep lyric reference. Okay. Yes. So 82.3 overall it gets. Mm-hmm. And at the end of a big, big old bumper episode, because of all the big old bumper Beatles songs in it and Ruttles bursting in, we have, um, yeah, we have one in the top 10. And we have, yeah, if you, can, if you can believe it. I laughed off mic then, so it would sound interesting. <laughs> so we've scored 160 songs altogether, and the ones that had not made it to the top 10 have made it as follows. Wild Honey Pie is 152. Misery is 127. Free as a Bird is number 47. And For No One is number 25. So we'll just do a quick top 10. The Fool on the Hill at number 10. Cry Baby Cry at number 9. Lady Madonna at number 8, Let It Be at number 7, Within You Without You at number 6, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds at number 5, Penny Lane at number 4, I Am the Walrus at number 3, Strawberry Fields Forever at number 2, and A Day in the Life at number 1. Um. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about the um or about the um, inner groove really, no. but you know, it's been an hour and a half, we best go, so... Does that, a, Gary, before, oh, we go, before we go, does that mean yesterday has dropped out of the top 10? Oh, um, yesterday is now number 11, yes. Oh, blimey. But, you know, I wouldn't just listen to 10 Beatles songs. I'm, 
I'd listen to them. I'd listen to them all, just in this order, I guess. Right. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week for another exciting episode. Bye. The Beatles. <laughs>